This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to clavicle shaft fractures, as well as perineal tendon subluxation and dislocation, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with clavicle shaft fractures. And the first question reads, when considering treatment options and their associated complications for a healthy adult with an isolated, completely displaced mid-shaft clavicle fracture, initial open reduction and internal fixation compared to non-operative treatment with a sling leads to, and the choices are 1. Decreased non-union rates and decreased healthcare costs, 2. Decreased non-union rates and equivocal healthcare costs, 3. Decreased non-union rates and increased healthcare costs, 4. Equivocal non-union rates and decreased healthcare costs, and five equivocal non-union rates and increased healthcare costs. So in healthy adults with a completely displaced mid-shaft clavicle fracture, initial open reduction and internal fixation leads to decreased non-union rates. However, the costs associated with this treatment and its possible complications are significantly greater than the cost of initial non-operative treatment with a sling and delayed surgery if necessary. So the correct answer to this question is three, decreased non-union rates and increased healthcare costs. To quickly review, mid-shaft clavicle fractures represent 80-85% to of all clavicle fractures and often occur as a result of direct trauma or fall on an outstretched arm. Treatment of this injury with primary open reduction internal fixation versus non-operative care with a sling is a controversial topic with respect to patient-reported functional outcomes. The current literature reports higher rates of non-union in those managed non-operatively. Economic evaluation of these treatments using data from randomized controlled trials has demonstrated that ORIF is more costly compared to non-operative treatment. The reported cost difference accounts for both the cost of the initial treatment and costs incurred as a result of the treatment of complications, which includes delayed surgery rates for those initially managed non-operatively and reoperation rates for those initially managed with ORIF. Robinson et al. conducted a multi-center, single-blinded, randomized controlled trial with 200 patients comparing primary ORIF versus non-operative treatment. The rate of non-union was significantly reduced with ORIF, with a relative risk of 0.07 and a p-value of 0.007. Although patient-reported functional outcomes appeared to be superior in those undergoing primary ORIF, this effect vanished when those with non-unions were removed from the analysis costs were significantly greater for those treated with primary ORIF, with a p-value of less than 0.0001. Wren et al. performed a systematic review of randomized controlled trials comparing operative versus non-operative treatment for displaced mid-shaft clavicle fractures. They found that ORIF leads to fewer non-unions but more minor complications compared to non-operative treatment. Additionally, they concluded that the effect of ORIF on functional outcomes remains controversial. Walton et al. utilized data from four randomized controlled trials to conduct a decision analysis with respect to costs from the perspective of a single payer for ORIF versus non-operative management. Reoperation and delayed surgery for those treated with ORIF and those treated non-operatively, respectively, were defined as the endpoints. The expected cost for ORIF was $14,763.21 compared with $3,112.65 for non-operative treatment, yielding a cost savings of $11,650.56 for non-operative treatment. Moving on to the next question. Disadvantages of anterior-inferior plate fixation for acute clavicular fractures relative to superior plating include 1. More prominent implants leading to higher rates of reoperation for implant removal, 2. Higher non-union rate, 3. 
inferior fixation due to shorter screw lengths laterally, four, an increased need to detach the deltoid origin, and five, an increased risk for injury to subclavian structures. So anterior inferior plate fixation of midshaft clavicular fractures has evolved to be an alternative plate location compared to superior plating. The advantages of anterior inferior plating are reduced prominence of the hardware compared to the subcutaneous superior plates, the potential for placement of longer screws as the clavicle is wider front to back than top to bottom, especially laterally, and a potential for decreased risk to the subclavian structures. A relative disadvantage of anterior inferior plating is a need to detach a small portion of the deltoid origin. Union rates for anterior inferior plating are similar to those with superior plating. But the correct answer to this question is four, an increased need to detach the deltoid origin. Moving on to the next question. A 27-year-old man sustains an injury in a fall while downhill skiing. Two days after the injury, is seen by an orthopedic surgeon and is diagnosed with a clavicle fracture. Examination and radiographs reveal three centimeters of shortening between the fracture fragments of the mid-shaft clavicle fracture. The surgeon has a discussion with the patient concerning surgical versus non-surgical treatment. With regards to results, the patient is informed that they are similar concerning which of the following, and the choices are 1. Non-union rates, 2. Infection, 3. Shoulder range of motion, 4. Shoulder strength, and 5. Shoulder rotational endurance. So shoulder range of motion is well maintained for both surgical and non-surgical management. So the correct answer to this question is 3. Shoulder range of motion. Recent reports suggest that non-surgical management of this fracture pattern may result in deficits of shoulder endurance and strength. Non-union rates are significantly lowered with surgical repair. Patient satisfaction as determined by constant scores, DASH, and patient-specific questionnaires was higher with surgical intervention. Shoulder strength and rotational endurance are improved with surgical repair. Moving on to the next question, which of the following factors is associated with the highest rate of non-union of a mid-shaft clavicle fracture? And their choices are 1. Younger patients, 2. Female gender, 3. Simple fracture pattern, four, sling immobilization, and five, early range of motion. So the risk of non-union in patients sustaining middle third clavicle fractures is increased in female patients, making two the correct answer to this question. To quickly review, clavicle fractures are often secondary to direct blows to the lateral aspect of the shoulder. Physical exam is important to ascertain the status of the skin and neurovascular structures to help guide treatment management. Although most non-displaced middle third clavicle fractures may be treated successfully with conservative measures, the risk for non-union is 1-5% to and this increases with increasing comminution, female gender, shortening greater than 2 centimeters, and an advanced age of the patient. Robinson et al. reviewed 581 patients treated non-operatively for mid-shaft clavicle fractures. A non-union rate of 4.5% was identified at 24 weeks after the injury. They identified four factors that contributed to non-union, including female gender, lack of cortical apposition, comminution of the fracture fragments, and advancing age. Zalowski et al. reviewed 2,144 clavicle fracture cases in a comprehensive meta-analysis. They report displacement as the highest risk factor for non-union in 15.1% of patients in non-operatively treated clavicle fractures, and simple slings were favored over figure of eight braces. They also report an 86% reduction in the non-union rate when operative fixation is chosen over non-operative treatment for displaced clavicle fractures. Moving on to the next question, which of the following factors increases the risk of non-union in mid-shaft clavicle fractures when treated non-operatively? And the choices are 1. Sling immobilization, 2. Displacement and comminution, 3. Age less than 40 years old, 4. Immediate motion exercises, and 5. Male gender. 
So Robinson et al. have shown that lack of cortical opposition, comminution, female gender, and advancing age are the four factors that contribute to non-union. So of those listed, two, displacement and comminution increases the risk of non-union in mid-shaft clavicle fractures when treated non-operatively. The Canadian Orthopedic Trauma Society, in a randomized prospective study, showed that for mid-shaft fractures in adults with 100% displacement, ORIF results in improved DASH and constant scores with a p-value of 0.001 and a p-value of less than 0.01, respectively. It also showed lower non-union in 2 versus 7 with a p-value of 0.042 and lower malunion, comparing 0 versus 9 patients with a p-value of 0.001. Surgery resulted in quicker radiographic union, that is 16.4 weeks versus 28.4 weeks with a p-value of 0.001. However, 15% had hardware and wound complications. At one year, the operative group was more likely to be satisfied with the shoulder in general with a p-value of 0.002 and the appearance of the shoulder in particular with a p-value of 0.001 in comparison to the non-operative group. Prior studies have shown that greater than 2 centimeters of shortening treated non-operatively results in increased fatigability and poor outcome, but not necessarily non-union. The Lazaridis article concluded that, quote, final clavicular shortening of more than 18 millimeters in male patients and of more than 14 millimeters in female patients was significantly associated with an unsatisfactory result. Studies have shown no difference in outcome when treated with a figure of 8 harness compared to a simple sling. And moving on to the final question for this topic, which of the following is most commonly associated with an open clavicular fracture? And the choices are 1. Scapulothoracic dissociation, 2. Closed head injury, 3. Calcaneous fracture, 4. Pelvic ring injury, and 5. Open tibial fracture. So open clavicular fractures are rare and result from high-energy trauma. In a series of 20 patients with open clavicular fractures, 13, that is 65% of patients, sustained a closed head injury. 15, that is 75% of patients, had associated pulmonary injuries, and 35% had a cervical or thoracic spine fracture. Only one demonstrated scapulothoracic dissociation. Screening for pulmonary and closed head injuries should be considered in the setting of traumatic open clavicular fractures. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Closed head injury is most commonly associated with an open clavicular fracture. Moving on to the final topic of perineal tendon subluxation and dislocation, the first question reads, A 20-year-old male sustained an ankle sprain four weeks ago while skiing. He now complains of persistent painful snapping and popping posterior to the lateral malleolus. On exam, snapping is felt over the lateral fibula when the patient moves against resistance in dorsiflexion and eversion. What was the most likely mechanism of his injury? And the choices are 1. Forced dorsiflexion and inversion, 2. Forced dorsiflexion and eversion, 3. Forced plantar flexion and eversion, 4. Forced plantar flexion and inversion, and 5. Direct trauma to the fibula. So the patient presentation is consistent with perineal tendon subluxation dislocation secondary to a forced dorsiflexion and eversion injury, making 2 the correct answer to this question. The perineal tendons are located posterior to the lateral malleolus and are a common source of pathology in refractory ankle sprains. This patient is complaining of subluxating perineal tendons as a result of a torn superior perineal retinaculum. Patients with varus alignment are at higher risk for perineal tendon pathology. On exam, the compression test elicits pain or crepitus with passive dorsiflexion and eversion. Patients may note apprehension or subluxation with resisted dorsiflexion and eversion. Patient history often includes a report of forced dorsiflexion and inversion, leading to rapid reflexive contraction of the perineal tendons. 
This places excessive tension on the tendons, leading to tearing of the superior perineal retinaculum. Mofuli et al. followed 14 males who underwent surgical treatment for traumatic perineal tendon subluxation. No patients experienced re-injury and all returned to their normal activities. They concluded that an anatomic repair of the retinaculum leads to good results in higher demand patients. Philbin et al. reviewed perineal tendon pathology including perineal subluxation and dislocation. The author states that treatment in acute cases may consist of non-operative management with short leg cast immobilization of the ankle, implantar flexion, and inversion for six weeks or surgical intervention in the form of superior perineal retinaculum repair. Moving on to the next question, which of the following would jeopardize the success of a surgery to address dislocating perineal tendons? And the choices are 1. Longitudinal tear of the peroneus longus requiring repair. 2. The presence of a concave retromalleolar groove. 3. Hindfoot varus. 4. Immobilization for 4 to 6 weeks postoperatively. And 5. Direct repair of an acutely torn superior perineal retinaculum. So hindfoot varus is a risk factor for failure of procedures to repair dislocating perineal tendons, making 3 the correct answer to this question. Repair of the superior perineal retinaculum is successful in acute cases of perineal tendon dislocation. In chronic situations, tissue augmentation of the superior perineal retinaculum, deepening of the retrofibular groove, or use of a fibular bone block procedure can be undertaken to further prevent perineal subluxation. Any evidence of hindfoot varus warrants consideration of surgical correction. Porter et al. present a case series of 14 ankles with perineal tendon instability, which they treated with fibular groove deepening and retinacular reconstruction. At an average follow-up of 35 months, all patients had returned to sport with no recurrent subluxations or dislocations. Moving on to the next question. A 42-year-old patient complains of anterior and lateral ankle pain, as well as limited dorsiflexion, after non-surgical management of a displaced intraarticular calcaneus fracture. Imaging shows subtalar joint arthrosis, lateral wall exostosis, and loss of calcaneus height. What would be the best management? And the choices are 1. Posterior tibial tendon transfer, plus or minus vertical slide calcaneal osteotomy. 2. Achilles tendon lengthening and lateral wall exostectomy. 3. Superior perineal retinaculum repair, plus or minus sural nerve neurolysis. 4. Subtalar bone block arthrodesis, lateral wall exostectomy, plus or minus Achilles tendon lengthening. And 5 tibio-talo-calcaneal nailing. So calcaneal malunion is a common problem with non-operative management. The classic indication for bone block arthrodesis is anterior ankle pain and limited dorsiflexion, secondary to impingement of the horizontal talus on the tibia. Lateral ankle pain may be due to perineal dislocation, subfibular impingement, or subtalar arthritis. In this scenario, lateral wall exostectomy would help to address the subfibular impingement. The calcaneal malunion is evaluated with plane radiographs and CT scan and classified according to the Steven Sanders classification. Type 1 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy and a perineal tenolysis. Type 2 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy, perineal tenolysis, and a subtalar bone block arthrodesis using bone graft. Type 3 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy, perineal tenolysis, subtalar bone block arthrodesis, closing wedge calcaneal osteotomy to correct varus hindfoot malalignment, or triple arthrodesis. Sanders et al. reviewed displaced calcaneal fractures. He states that perineal tendinitis can occur with non-surgical management of intraarticular calcaneal fractures. The expanded lateral wall often subluxates the perineal tendons against the distal tip of the fibula, causing impingement and pain. Moving on to the next question. 
A 42-year-old athletic trainer has persistent popping sensation about the lateral ankle associated with weakness and pain following a remote injury. Deficiency in what structure directly leads to this pathology? And the choices are 1. Lateral Taylor process, 2. Superior perineal retinaculum, 3. Inferior perineal retinaculum, 4. Extensor retinaculum, and 5. The crural fascia. So this patient has instability of the perineal tendon. The superior perineal retinaculum is the primary retaining structure preventing perineal subluxation. So the correct answer to this question is 2. Superior perineal retinaculum. So the superior perineal retinaculum is a thickening of the fascia that arises off the posterior margin of the distal 1 to 2 centimeters of the fibula and runs posteriorly to blend with the Achilles tendon sheath. The inferior perineal retinaculum attaches to the perineal tubercle of the calcaneus and is not involved in this pathology. A deficient groove in the posterior distal fibula may also be a contributing factor in the development of the condition. Moving on to the next question. A 51-year-old plumber has a failed peroneus brevis tendon repair. He reports continued pain and swelling in the distal retrofibular area. MRI shows longitudinal tears of the peroneus longus and brevis tendon. What is the surgical treatment of choice at this time? And the choices are 1. Subtalar fusion, 2. Posterior tibial tendon transfer to the cuboid, 3. Split posterior tibial tendon transfer to the lateral cuneiform, 4. Flexor digitorum longus transfer to the fifth metatarsal, and 5. Excision of both the perineus longus and brevis. So a flexor digitorum longus transfer, while not as strong as the perineals, improves the tendon balance and maintains hind foot mobility. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Flexor digitorum longus transfer to the fifth metatarsal. Subtalar fusion is a salvage procedure. Posterior tibial tendon transfer compromises inversion strength and arch height. Functional absence of the perineals result in an imbalance that could lead to forefoot varus. Moving on to the next question. A 55-year-old recreational tennis player presents to clinic after initial rehabilitation complaining primarily about pain and swelling along the posterior fibula. He states he sprained his ankle six months ago and was treated with bracing and proprioceptive training. He notes multiple sprains in the past, but the pain from prior sprains was different and always resolved. After an MRI demonstrated a perineus brevis tear, he is taken to the operating room. During surgery, you identify multiple longitudinal tears in the perineus brevis tendon and a 3-centimeter portion of the tendon with significant tendinosis in over 70% of the cross-sectional area. What is the appropriate surgical procedure? And the choices are 1. Core repair and tubularization of the perineus brevis tendon, 2. Perineal groove deepening, 3. Excision of the diseased tendon without transfer, 4. Excision of the diseased tendon with proximal and distal transfer to the perineus longus, and 5. Arthroscopic debridement of the perineus brevis. So the patient in the question has a complex tear in the peroneus brevis tendon and the most appropriate treatment is a debridement of the tendon with tenodesis of distal and proximal ends of the brevis tendon to the peroneus longus making 4. Excision of the diseased tendon with proximal and distal transfer to the peroneus longus the correct answer to this question. Initial treatment for patients with tears in the peroneus brevis tendon can be non-operative, but surgical treatment is an excellent option when symptoms persist. Surgical options for patients with a tear in the peroneus brevis tendon are dependent on the complexity of the tear with simple tears being treated with core repair and tubularization of the peroneus brevis tendon and complex tears being treated with either debridement of the tendon with tenodesis of the distal and proximal ends of the brevis tendon to the peroneus longus or reconstruction with allograft. Moving on to the next question, which of the following physical examination findings would suggest injury to the superior perineal retinaculum? And the choices are 1. Positive ankle anterior drawer test, 2. Positive external rotation stress test, 
three, crepitus over the anterior lateral ankle joint, four, palpable tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion, and five, tenderness at the base of the fifth metatarsal with ankle eversion. So, tearing of the superior perineal retinacular ligament can lead to perineal tendon subluxation. This can be felt during the foot and ankle physical exam by palpating for perineal tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion and eversion, making four palpable tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion the correct answer to this question. The superior perineal retinaculum keeps the perineal tendons contained within the retromalleolar groove of the fibula. Injury or tearing of the ligament will cause perineal tendon subluxation, which causes pain and a popping sensation over the lateral ankle. Treatment initially consists of conservative modalities, including physical therapy. Failure of non-operative treatment warrants surgical repair of the disrupted retinaculum and deepening of the groove if needed. Walther et al. treated 23 consecutive patients, average age of 34.2 years with a range between 16 to 57 years old, with symptomatic subluxation of the perineal tendon. They showed that reconstruction of the perineal retromalleolar groove and attenuation of the retinaculum significantly improved patient outcomes. And moving on to the final question for this topic, which of the following mechanisms of injury to the ankle is most likely to result in disruption of the superior perineal retinaculum with subsequent perineal tendon instability? And the choices are one, plantar flexion and eversion, two, neutral ankle position, three, neutral ankle flexion and inversion, four, dorsiflexion and inversion, and five, plantar flexion and inversion. So perineal tendon instability can occur during an inversion injury to a dorsiflexed ankle with rapid reflexive contraction of the peroneus longus and peroneus brevis tendons. Patients often hear a pop or feel a snapping sensation, followed by pain and swelling. The perineals have a vascular watershed region just posterior to the fibula and are prone to longitudinal tears. Radiographs often show an avulsion fracture of the distal fibula, also known as a rim fracture, at the insertion of the superior perineal retinaculum. Chronic instability of the perineal tendons can be best demonstrated by positioning the ankle in dorsiflexion and resisting eversion. With ankle plantar flexion and inversion, the line of pull is more direct and thus there is much less tendency for subluxation. Treatment for acute injuries involves cast immobilization to allow the superior perineal retinaculum to heal. Injuries recalcitrant to conservative management or high-level athletes may benefit from superficial perineal retinaculum repair and fibular groove deepening procedures. That's all for this question session about clavicle shaft fractures as well as perineal tendon subluxation and dislocation. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.